Amen. Good morning. Sam, I didn't know you could play the keyboard. You do a wonderful job. <laughs> yeah, wonderful job. We are in the seventh chapter of First Corinthians. I have a little joke. Now, you, if you've been here long enough, you know the joke master is Larry. But when Larry told me this joke in the office, I said, don't tell it to anyone. I'm going to tell it. It was so good, so I don't want to mess it up. Let me read it. <laughs> Why didn't Noah go fishing? Why didn't Noah go fishing? He only had two worms. Y'all should have got that one. That was a great joke. That was a great joke. But we're, we're in 1 Corinthians. Don't fall asleep on me. I know it's raining outside. We need it. We're in the seventh chapter. Last Sunday, my wife got on to me about this. We talked about sex. Uh, now we will take God's inspired word and talk about divorce and remarriage. When I was planning on going through 1 Corinthians, this seventh chapter made me say, man, I better know what I'm talking about. I better study. I better be prepared. Sometimes God's word touches us in a way, but we have to know that God loves us. And every word in the scriptures are profitable for us. We have to yield to them and allow the Lord to work. But this morning, we're talking about divorce and remarriage. For, uh, verses 1 through 7, Paul, and he says this all the way through this. He says, stay married with full conjugal rights. Verse 8 and 9, he will be speaking on to the unmarried and widows. It is good to remain unmarried. Verse 10 through 11, to the married, both partners if they're believers, remain married. And then 12 through 16, to those with an unbelieving spouse. Paul says the same thing. I say Paul, but you know the Holy Spirit is moving inside of him. So God is saying, remain unmarried. Paul's main point is remain in the status you were at at the time. This is key of your calling, of your call. We're going to go to verse 1 again, chapter 7. Won't harp there long, but it says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. We learned that to touch a woman meant to have sex. It does not mean, as the NIV put it when they first came out with their print, to marry then we begin to talk about sex in the context of marriage, the only proper place that is permitted. But it's vital, don't you get all twisted up, and I don't want you to be all twisted up. It's vital to remember the Corinthians culture and exactly what was going on in Corinth at the time of Paul's letter here. And from there, we will broaden out to our culture today. We want to know God's heart on not only this matter that we're talking about, but everything in the word of God. So I want you guys to stick with me. Don't be thinking about what you're going to eat after lunch or what movie you might see, because you might be thinking about that. And I'll say something very vital. Then I'll hear you say, but Pastor Victor said this, and I, I wouldn't have said it. So stick with me. Stay focused. There's been considerable pressure within the Corinthian church to dissolve or abstain from marriage. So it's good to know the Corinthians' position. And it seems on the basic basis of their slogan, their motto, and it was, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was their motto. So those in Corinth who held such views seems to appear to be putting pressure on the married to dissolve their marriages or at least abstain from sexual relations in their marriage. 
and for the engaged and widows not to marry at all. That's what that motto was for. But what seems to lie behind the position is, once again, their present, and I said this from the beginning of chapter one, pneumatic existence. And remember, we talked about that, that there were some in Corinth who thought they were pneumaticos. That means they were full of the spirit. They were people of the spirit because of their, and only because of their gifts of, of tongues. They thought they had arrived along with Sophia and Gnosis, wisdom and knowledge. So by rallying around Sophia, the Corinthians thought they were spiritually endowed. They thought they had special wisdom and superior knowledge than anyone else. They thought they lived on a higher plane, on a higher level, with their nose in the air than just regular believers. They thought they had arrived despite their continuing existence in their physical bodies. They thought they were in the new age. The Corinthians considered themselves to be spiritual ones already, and I've said this before, already as the angels. That's what they thought. And once again, they thought the body eschatologically was insignificant, meaning it doesn't have a present significant in the world they're living in. They had an over-realized eschatological view of the present existence. Their present existence were to be understood in strictly spiritual terms. And they thought already they were experiencing in the spirit the full measure. Their only downfall, they thought they were in the spirit totally, but they still lived on earth and they still had a body. And as I was thinking about this, we have to understand uh, revelations had not been written at this time. They had enough scripture to know, should, to should have known that what they were saying was getting off course. That's why Paul writes them this letter. That's why Paul goes and visits them. Because all, the only, only gift they had was the gifts of tongues. And it's understood, we know, as the language of angels. Then they're experiencing these, speak, they're speaking in tongues. It was proof to them, once again, that they had arrived. They had gotten all the wisdom. They had gotten all, they had become the fullness of God. They didn't need anything else. Also, they had a posse, so-called the eschatological women that lived there. That was their name of their group, the eschatological women, the end times women. They were already living, they thought, as if they had totally entered the new age. That's how they were living. So those like-minded in Corinth who held such a view appear to be putting pressure these eschatological women, they were putting pressure on the married to dissolve their marriages or abstain from sexual relations in their marriage and on the engaged and widows not to marry at all. That's where all of the pressure from the community was coming from. That's a lot of foolishness. And why all the foolishness? This is once again their present pneumatic existence which really had its roots in Hellenistic dualism in their own brand of spiritual eschatology. And what they thought were those who are spiritual, they were above the merely earthly existence of other marriages, belonging to this age, the other marriages, that is passing away. So we have the first evidence for the so-called eschatological women that were there in Corinth, who think of themselves as having already once again realized the resurrection from the dead. They thought they have made that, that leap. I don't know when they thought they died, but they thought they were already resurrected from the dead. That's where they think, that was their thinking. By being already spirit-filled, 
and as the angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage, Paul says about the angels. So it seems very likely that this question came up in Paul's letter that, they, that he had received. It was on the basis of their slogan, and this was their slogan, this was their motto. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. They were arguing for abstinence within marriage. And since that would be difficult for some, then divorce was being recommended as a viable alternative. Not only does Paul say no to that, in each case, matter of fact, but even in his exceptions are no real exceptions. Paul's response on both sides is the same. Remain as you are. That's what he tells them. For the married, there are no real exceptions. Here he has the command of the Lord on this. But for the never before married and widows, he allows genuine exception. Even though singleness is clearly his own preference, Paul will give his own reasons for singleness, which is the eschatological urgency of our present time. He says, hey, you're not going to be here that long. You'd be better off if you weren't married. That's what the Holy Spirit tells Paul. Verse 1, remember, is a Corinthian slogan. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, here's the slogan. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And we talked about that all the way down to first verse 4 and 5. We only spent time in three verses last week. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul goes on to say, do not deprive one another except with consent, mutually. And Paul says, for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again. Why? So that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is in the spirit. He, he's being born by the Holy Spirit as he writes this. And, he, and God tells him to write it because of our lack of self-control, even though self-control is one of the fruit of the spirit. He emphasizes that. It seems like that last part was kind of like an afterthought. Oh, by the way, while we are on the subject, do not forget, uh, forbid or defraud sex to one another. It is taking, the word defraud means to take away what rightfully belongs to another. The marriage couple, they have become one. Paul says, don't defraud one another from that. Let's skip down to verse 6. This is where I'll pick up this morning. But I say this as a concession. So Paul will meet them halfway on this, not as a commandment. And a concession is to own to his own preference celibacy. That's what Paul, and we'll find out that's what the Lord has did for Paul. Verse 7 says, for I wish, he says, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. He's speaking about his divine gifting. Paul has a divine gifting of celibacy. And this means celibacy in its true sense. God has did this for Paul. He's not referring to singleness as such. After all, many who are celibate in the true sense, not referring to singleness as such, cause many who are celibate in the sense which they were, wish they were not. But Paul has the gifting from the desire or need of sexual fulfillment. God has did that for him, which made it possible for him to live without being married at all. And Paul recognizes his celibacy is a charisma. That's what it's called, a gift from God not a requirement. And so this places the question on an entirely different plane when he comes with it. Because they were urging, once again, these eschatological women who had started this, they were urging celibacy for the married, using Paul's situation as part of the reason 
But Paul says, no, you can't do that. Celibacy is for the celibate. So it's a matter of gifting. That's what Paul was wanting them to understand. God has given me this gift and he does not give it to everyone. Such gifts cannot be reduced to principle, nor can any one of them be required across the board all the way. Verse seven, he says, for I wish, that's why he says this, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul is saying sex, in the sexual life of marriage, that's a gift from God. So he begins to speak first to those who are in his situation, that those that are not now married, but without his gift. He says in verse eight, but I say to the unmarried, here he goes, the agamos and to the widows. That word agamos is used for the man, for the male, the widower. So he's speaking plainly to the man here, even though in general, to those who are not married. All the cases in this present passage we're looking at deal with those presently or formerly married. To those whose marriages have been dissolved either from death, Paul advises, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. The question of whether Paul was ever married, he had to be married really, because he was a rabbi. And if you were a rabbi, like I said, you had to be married. So it's, most people say that when Paul became a Christian on the road to Damascus, he went back and told his wife that he had become a Christian and she ended the marriage. Matter of fact, it was so much, he had an epithet. They, they say they, they made a grave with Paul the apostle on it. To them, he was dead. And that's how Paul became single right there. Verse nine says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, and he doesn't say as the NIV says, if they cannot control themselves, at least the first copy of the NIV says, if they cannot control themselves, Paul says, let them marry. You know, as though it was really a a simple matter of self-control. But he says, if they do not practice, that's what he means, or are not exercising self-control, So the issue is not the sexual drive as such, but the sinful practice of some of the brothers for whom marriage rather than sin should be a proper order of things. In other words, these unmarried folk are doing the same things that the marriage people are doing. That's going to the prostitutes because that's what they were doing. And they were going to the prostitute because once again, These eschatological women were saying, you need to abstain from sex, even in marriage, or get a divorce, even while you're together. And then he says, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That verse has always caught my eye, and we know it's clearly metaphorical, but the question is, is he saying, burning with desire or burn, you will burn with judgment. Both of these can be supported by Jewish sources. The answer is found contextually. It is most likely that Paul intended that those who are committing sexual sins should rather marry than to be consumed by passion. I also think the Holy Spirit was intentionally ambiguous on this so that we would, would have a hurdle. To, we would have to jump over that in order for our sin. That would be in the believer's mind. But I want you to notice the order of Paul's concern, which is addressed first and primarily he addresses the women. And I believe this is because the problem stems basically from the eschatological women using their slogan to reject sexual relations with their husbands and arguing for divorce 
if it came to that. And we have to understand that in a culture where apart from some women, they were wealthy, but the predominantly in a marriage, it was the man's responsibility almost. If a divorce happened, it was because of the man saying, hey, I want to divorce. But here, the women, they're making the first effort to get a divorce. Paul's response along with Jesus in the, in, in the synoptic gospels has served as the basis for canon law in the church on the whole question of divorce and remarriage. So we must remember that the original intent of the present passage was not to establish canon law, that's already been stated, but to address a specific situation that was going on in Corinth. Rejection of marriage bed by some believers are probably, they were ascetic, on ascetic grounds. Ascetic grounds means a person who dedicates their life to a pursuit of contemplated ideals and practices extreme self-denial for religious reasons. That's why they were getting the divorces. Here especially, the text needs to be heard in its own historical context before it is applied in a broader context. So he's saying, you cannot take what Paul is saying by the Holy Spirit and bring it to this world now that we're living in. He will give some key issues on that, but we have to look at it in the context that Paul writes this. Verse 10 tells us, now to the married. Paul is saying that the married, both are believers here. I command, that's what he says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. This is only the, this really is the only command in the entire chapter here. Paul shows uncertainty here. And he shows it towards the, the, the widowers and widows should they get married again. And he consistently he rejects the notion that believers who are married may dissolve their marriages. Paul is not saying this once again. The Lord, the Holy Spirit is saying this. Mark 10, 11, this is what Jesus said. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Matthew 19, 9 goes a little bit further. He says, Jesus speaking, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. In both these cases, the man is in view. He commits adultery by marrying someone other than his wife or by marrying someone else's wife. Jesus, in effect, interpreted the seventh commandment to mean, really, no divorce. He says, you shall not commit adultery. This is the perspective that Paul picks up on here. Since the concern is strictly about divorce, we have to remember, though, divorce in Greco-Roman culture could be legalized by means of a document, but more often it simply happened. They would just turn and walk away. This culture, when it comes to divorce, whether established by document or not, either the man sent his wife away in some sense of verse 12 where we'll get there, or else either of them just left the other to separate, never to go back into that relationship again. What we need, what really needs to be noted is that such action by a woman was generally not allowed amongst the Jews. Divorce was the man's prerogative in the Jewish culture. And for almost any reason, we've talked about Shimei and, and Hiliel. Shimei, uh, Hiliel was the more uh, liberal. He said, if, if your wife burnt your toast, you could get a divorce. You, you could get a divorce for any reason just about with Hiliel, what he's saying. But women could 
and did get a divorce to their husbands in, in the Greco-Roman world. They, they were doing that. It is amazing that Paul should begin his response by primarily speaking to the woman. This once again shows that this is an issue risen with the context of the eschatological women who were arguing divorce as to remain pure. They had it stirred up. Verse 11 says, but even if she depart, and he's, in, he's indicating this is for any reason. We know that he goes on and says for sexual immorality, but God is being gracious here. He says, and he's indicating for any reason at all, if she departs, he says, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. This is remarkable because the commandment said no divorce for believers. Nonetheless, just as in all the other situations addressed in this chapter, Paul allows an exception. But even if she does depart, but the other shoe drops, he says, let her remain unmarried. We don't like that. And I'm just being honest. I know we don't like that. But the Holy Spirit says, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So it goes both ways. The ideal situation is no divorce, but without remarriage. What is disallowed here is precisely what one finds in the teaching of Jesus, no adultery. If, if she does separate, she must continue to follow the precept, stay as you are, meaning remain unmarried. You know, I think here Paul begins to generalize, no longer he, is he making a point with the Corinthian church. He says, the wife who may happen to divorce her husband may not use her present unmarried condition as an excuse for remarriage to someone else. If she does, in, in fact, desire to remarry, she must reconcile to her husband. What is true of the wife is true of the husband. However, the lack of exception here suggests that it's not where the problem lays. And let me say this, in a culture where divorce has become something of a norm, this text has understandably become a bone of considerable contention. Some find Paul and Jesus a little too harsh and try to find ways around the plain sense of the text. I've read it ever since we started the book of 1 Corinthians, I've been hating to get to chapter seven. I've been slowing down to get to chapter seven. But if you listen what the Holy Spirit is saying, there's grace there. And that's, that's, that's what I want you to catch because you have to put, you cannot take what was happening in Corinth in their culture and set it here. Oh yeah, the demands are the same but I really want you to catch the grace. Because some turn what Paul has just said into law, which it is not, and make divorce the worst of all sins in the church. Neither of these seem the appropriate response. On the other hand, there is little question that Paul and Jesus disallowed divorce between two believers, especially when it served as grounds for remarriage. Paul does not give reason for that here, but his view of marriage, I don't have time to read it, but read Ephesians chapter 2, 22 through 33. It indicates it is related to the view of the unitive aspect of marriage and the mutuality of Christian love, 
which makes it very similar to the reason Jesus gives. It has to do with first priorities, discipleship, not personal wishes or comfort. On the other hand, Paul doesn't raise this norm to law. He doesn't do that. Divorce may happen, and such a person is not ostracized from the church. But it must also be remembered that in this setting, divorce was being sought for aesthetic reasons. Hey, I'm disciplining myself. And I, and, and, and I look through uh, the history of the church, and uh, they talked about Luther and, and more being aesthetic. It's, it's discipline your body, and, and they, go, they go totally overboard. Paul is not speaking of that. Paul does not want that. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying. What is not allowed, Paul said, is to remarriage, both because for him that presupposes the teachings of Jesus that such is adultery, and because in the Christian community, reconciliation is the norm. I've only seen that happen one time in my lifetime. I'm sure it's happened many more. I was privileged to marry Paul and his wife Sandy again, to remarry them here right here, and that was such a blessing. That's what God is saying should happen for a believer. If they divorce, they have to come back together. Verse 12 says this. And then, so Paul has talked about those that are not married, those are that are, are suggesting to get married. He says now, but to the rest, these are believers married to unbelievers. Paul speaks to this matter. I, not the Lord. That, that always bothered me when he says, I am saying this, but not the Lord. And the reason he says that, since such concerns lay outside the province of Jesus' own life settings, this was not happening when Jesus was on the ground. That's what he's saying. So he says, I, not the Lord, says this. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So now we're talking about marriages with a believer and an unbeliever. And Paul still says, if there's any way possible, don't divorce her. Don't initiate the divorce. Then he says, and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband. This is the reason why, this is the reason why Paul says not to get a divorce in the beginning. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified. The word has been used so far as a metaphor for salvation, but it does not carry that weight right here. It cannot, because the idea that marriage can affect salvation for the unbeliever is ludicrous. What he means is, if, if I am correct, and I know I am, <laughs> he brings it back to this motto that the eschatological women were saying Siding. Remember, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. As the grounds, that's why they were having these divorces, to argue for sexual abstinence in the marriage. Paul says the believer is not defiled. Here we go. The believer or the unbeliever is not defiled. Rather, the unbeliever, if you marry an unbeliever, you sanctify them in the marriage relationship. That's why Paul calls him a brother here. But this does not mean, hear me well, that they have acquired salvation or holiness. He does not mean that. But it means as long as the marriage is maintained, the potential for the spouse's realization of salvation, they're getting close. It matters if an unbeliever stays with a, a believer because his life or her life, the, the believer, should be affecting the unbeliever's life. And that's why Paul says, if you can, stay together. 
You sanctified the marriage, not in salvation, but Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, they're close by your lifestyle. You will persuade them, hopefully, when you just cut it off and say, hey, you go your own way, they may never get the chance again. That's what he's saying. He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, he takes it a step further. He says, otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. What, what, do, what do the kids have to do with it? That's how important the Holy Spirit is saying your testimony, the believer's testimony to the unbelieving spouse's testimony, it's that important. It's that important if you have to take a little slack. It's that important if you have to bear up under a tough life. That's what Jesus is saying because he's right there helping us. Now these days, and, and, and I wasn't as much into politics 20 years ago as I am now. They kept saying Ronald Reagan was a great president. Ronald Reagan was a great president. I look back, yeah, he was a good president. But he messed up on one time when he came out with that $1 divorce. That's all it took to get a divorce. It messed up California and it swept over the country. And Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is saying it should not be. Even for if you marry an unbeliever, your testimony matters how you live. And it, it matters so much, it not only touches the believer and the unbeliever, but it goes to the family how you live. And I've seen that happen. And he's exactly right. It reminds me of Romans eleven sixteen. This is what Paul says through the Holy Spirit. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. Amen. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul is saying sooner or later, hopefully eventually, the whole tree will be holy. Even though Israel has turned their back, even while Paul is pinning this epistle, Israel has turned their eyes. They, they are blind to the Lord. The root is still holy. And so they have an opportunity to come to know the Lord by your walk, by my walk. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying here. The analogy is clear enough. The consecration of the part sanctifies the whole. All of Israel, we know, is not yet converted. But because Paul says the first fruit and the root were holy, because Israel was originally sanctified unto God anyway. So the Israel of Paul's day, though still in unbelief, was nonetheless holy to the Lord. In this special sense, Paul hoped for their eventual coming to faith. And that's why it's important if the believer can hang in there, hang in there because your testimony means something. Paul is setting forth a high view of grace. That's what he does. A high view of grace that even if the, your unmarried spouse don't know the Lord, you keep trudging. You keep living for the Lord. And sooner or later, they will become to know the Lord if, if you're doing what you're supposed to in the household. So he says in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, you've tried. Paul says, let him depart. And it hints back to the eschatological women, he's saying, let him depart. He didn't say let her depart because, like I told you, from, from the culture, the women were leaving, and the, and the reason they were leaving, they thought they had arrived. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. And then he says something strange, but God has called us to peace. Live in peace. Do all you can and if, if you're married to an unbeliever. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. 
Live in peace. Live in peace. That's what the Lord says. That's what the Holy Spirit says. Be the salt and light that you were called to. I tell people, and, I, and, and I've counseled a lot of people with divorces and all those things. Uh, most of the time in our culture, it seems as if the, the, the husband is wanting to leave the wife and the husband is just, for better lack of words, is just acting a fool, doing what they want to. And my main sticking point is God loves you. You're a believer. You're trying to do the best you can. You walk with the Lord. The Lord will make a way. And I believe that with all my heart. Either that unbeliever would just leave. I, I, I can't do it. I can't bear it anymore. But God is right in there with you. The Bible says, and I, I don't mean this uh, lackadaisical or, or any way, any kind of way. God is there. He, he will protect you. This means something because your children, especially if you have children, they're watching. They're doing all that. Is mom going to live a holy life despite how dad is acting? Is dad going to live a holy life despite what mom is doing? And the Lord is right there. He says in verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Because that's what Jesus has and on his heart, saving people. You know, it's hard to go, and I'll I, I put this on me. It's hard to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, my life is so miserable. They're cheating me here. They're, they're, they're messing with me there. And he says, I haven't seen you pin on a cross. Hebrew says, I have not seen you have to give up you have not suffered until blood. That's what Hebrew says. That's why I say we play, we're playing T-ball. Anything affects Victor, changes his uh, attitude, and his, uh, circumstances just flip him all upside down. And that's what Jesus is saying here. What about me? And we know he's not a masochist. And he gives you grace to handle those things. I believe he's going to look out for the man or the woman. That's why the Holy Spirit says, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? He's speaking of divorce here. He's not speaking of separation. You, you do what's beneficially good for you. If the husband is acting a fool, as long as he's not touching, and if you touch it, separate. And separate for as long as you have to. But God is speaking here. And he's still wanting to save that unsaved spouse here. And he's using you to do it. These are hard words. But this is what the scripture says. So don't get mad at me. Get mad at the scripture. This is what the scripture says right here. Because that's, that's all our loving Savior Jesus has on his heart is salvation for the sinner. He's the one who was stretched out. Cat of nine tails being beaten on his back, a crown of thorns being placed on his head. That's how much he wants to not only save the unsaved spouse, but the saved spouse. Reverse that. That's how much he wants to save them. And he's using you to do that. That's why Paul is writing this, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, hang in there. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? First Peter 3, 1, Peter says this, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. That might be a dirty word in our culture now, but who cares? That's what the Lord says. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word, they without a word, speaking of the wife, they without a word. I say this because Pastor Terry 
before me and Lydia got married. He said, y'all are fire and gasoline. And we were saved. Tell them, I'm, I'm just, uh, yeah, I was saved at that time anyway. I don't know if you were quite saved, but he says, y'all are fire and gasoline. He says, y'all are gonna need the Lord to make, make this happen. You sure you wanna make it happen? I said, yeah, I love her. I'll change. The, the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit living inside me, I will change. And to this day, just like the word says, if I mess up, this is one of my chief points I always make to Liddy. If I mess up, you don't have to tell me I messed up. I know I messed up. You don't have to tell me. And as soon as she started not telling me, because I feel bad enough when I mess up. I don't need it. Oh, you messed up. You did this wrong. Tell me something I don't know. But as soon as when I would trip up, she would not say anything. My heart would just melt. And I was reminded of this scripture. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying. He's always right. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husband. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And I've been won, have won many of times by her conduct. Verse 17, nevertheless, he says, Paul, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. This is important. Just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the church. You're not special current. I'm not saying anything different for you guys. I say this in all the churches. What Paul does pick up on, though, is the theme of one's calling. And that's what he begins to relate and grind on in order to press his theological point home. And he does this under the heading of, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Some Corinthians believers were seeking to change their present status, apparently because they saw such a change as conforming to more spiritual existence that they considered themselves already, that they already have attained. And they were thinking that their status with regard to marriage or, or celibacy as having religious significance and sought change because of it. Paul is trying to make them see when Christ calls you, that call is all that matters. And what I'm saying is Christ transcends all such settings, so making them not so much important anymore, but basically irrelevant in terms of ultimate realities. That's why he can say what he says when he, when he comes down the road. He, he, he says this, let me find it. Verse 18, was a man already circumcised when he was called? Paul was a Jew when he came to faith. He says, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called a Gentile? He should not be circumcised. It doesn't matter. Being a Jew or Gentile, simply means nothing to God. Whatever one was when he was called is what one still is with no need to change anything. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying. Christ has made a great distinction. He goes on to say, when I, when I got out of jail, I had learned a trade and it was uh, welding. Tig well, MIG well, stick well, I can weld it. Well, I don't know if I can weld anymore. It's been a while. <laughs> but that was my trade. And like I told you, I was listening to Chuck Smith all day long while I TIG weld blades for the airlines. And I said, Lord, I enjoy this, but I sure would like to teach your word. And I, you know, I, wouldn't, I just told him that. And even then, I was sanctified to the Lord at the trade I was doing. That made it sanct sanctification because I was there. That's why Paul is saying, no matter if you're married to an unbeliever or a believer, you sanctify them. You're sanctified. You don't need to change your position or anything else. You're sanctified just by knowing me, being born again. So don't let the, 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 the culture change you. 
Don't reach out for esteem. Don't let that change you. You have me. It doesn't matter. I see guys working on, 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 I call him the garbage truck. And I talk to this guy. He's saved. We talk about the Lord all the time. God doesn't care what, what kind of work he does. He sanctifies that position where he's at. God is pleased with them right where he's at. That's why he says what he says here. Paul, he says in verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. He goes, and that would have blown a Jew's mind because circumcision was a sign of the covenant. They were proud of that. And here comes the Holy Spirit saying, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. First Corinthians Paul is talking about works here. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 21, to those without law as without law, not as without law to God, but as legitimately subject to Christ. And I'm reading from the uh, English standard, in order that I might gain those without law. Paul does not consider obedience to the commands of God as works of the law. Our proper response to grace should be obedience to the will of God. That's what grace does. He says in verse 20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. It has been argued that this statement right here, Paul intended to emphasize that each one should remain in their Christian calling that each one should remain a Christian in whatever social situation one is in. What you are affects everything you do in life. Paul wants them to live out their Christian life, their calling to Christ in the situation where they were when God called them. The emphasis are on both here, that they can be Christ's people in whatever situation, just what I said, God called them. And therefore, they do not need to change their situations. Verse 21 says, were you called while a slave? And this is how much Paul means what he says, because these are hard words if you were a slave. Were you called while a slave? He says, do not be concerned about it. Is he crazy? Is Paul crazy for saying that? He says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do not be concerned And it's not a matter that God doesn't care because he does. I believe he's so good, he will move the slave from slavery to a better situation. That's the God I serve. I've said before, in all of those, I forget the number, the whole time the children of Israel were in Egypt in bondage, A lot of them didn't make it out. A lot of them died in bondage. Did God not care? Yes, he cared. But did they live lives of knowing Yahweh? That's what matters. That's what matters. Whether the situation ever changes or not, are we living for Christ? Those can be hard words unless you're in love with Jesus. We're talking about marriages that may, may not be that well. But that's what Jesus is saying by the power of the Holy Spirit. Stay in the position you're in because you have unbelievers looking. And I'm concerned about their salvation. I want them saved just like I want you saved. And that's what he means. He says in 21, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can become free, rather use it. And my God is good enough to set them free. He says in verse 22, he goes a little deeper. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord free man. Once again, this is the captain of the host. Luke 17, 20 says this in 21. I said this two weeks ago. The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. That tells us I should be in lockstep with what Jesus says and what he tells me to do while the world is living backwards. We should be living forward because the kingdom of God is in us. 
That's what makes us different. When we suffer, when the world suffers, they say, you did me wrong. I want payback. I want retribution. I want everything because it's me, me, me. God is saying by the Holy Spirit, that's okay. That's okay. You're not going to be here forever. What I want you to do is shine like stars in the universe and bring others to me. That can be a hard saying if you, don't, if you don't really want to love the Lord, if you don't want to really submit to the Lord. These can be harsh words. But Jesus is not only wanting to save you, he's wanting to save those around you. I tell you all the time about my mom and dad, good parents, but they had bad days too. I seen them get in fights, and I'm not saying with words, I'm saying with fists. And I'm saying, man, just get a divorce. Just do what you have to do. But like I told you, I seen my mama and my dad on their knees praying that the, not only that the Lord would change them, but change me. And he did. The greatest joy I've seen since marrying Lydia was when my dad had pancreatic cancer and mama had to ride him to drive him to the hospital and wait on him, and she had him by the arm, and he's walking. The love that they showed, that God used them to witness to me, that's what God is saying. You know, these days, if, if, if someone says something wrong, a spouse says something wrong, where's the divorce papers? That's why the world, you can't tell them the difference. They, they flee. They flee quickly when things don't go their way. God, by the Holy Spirit, is saying you're going to have tough days. That's what marriages are about. But it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about me and my kingdom and how if you live holy lives, even in the hard times, I will draw men unto you. See, we're all about self. I was watching Fox News, and people are marrying themselves these days. Did y'all, did y'all catch that? They're marrying themselves. Well, I just love me, and nobody else loves me like I love me, so I just marry myself. I'm saying, are you crazy? That's crazy. But that's how far we've gone into self. And Jesus touched down, and he says, uh-uh. It's not about you, Victor, because it wasn't about me. It was about my father that I was submitted and obedient to his will. And if you're going to follow me, Victor, you might see something better. You might want something better. You might do all that, but you've got to submit and you've got to surrender to me. And I will do the rest. That's all that Paul is saying here. Exodus 25, and I'll go to my seat with this, verse 5 and 6, because he talks about a servant. He says, but if the servant, in the Hebrew, in, in Hebrew it was called ebed, in, in the Greek it's called a doulos, same thing. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. This is a servant. This is a slave. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door of the or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. The key to life is finding the right master. I've tried drugs, I've tried alcohol, I've tried all everything else before I became a believer. And they might was satisfied for a second, but then I'm back in the same hole. But when I call for Jesus, he came, he's the best master in the world. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He always treats me better than he treats himself. That's who you should serve. That's what Paul is saying. We belong to Christ. And Paul reminds us why. He says in verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. You're only going to be here for a little while. Don't let the world recapture you. Don't start being tantalized 
by the things of the world. They will only put you in bondage if you're not careful. Continue to keep your eyes on me and seek me. That's what he says here. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one, he ends it with this, brethren. And he, notice he calls the Corinthian church brethren. Let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. It matters how we live. It matters. And we're here for a purpose. It's not to get saved and go home. Don't, a lot of us would be there now. God has something for us to do. His life was hard. His life was tough. He didn't even have anywhere to lay his head. But he loved his father so much he kept his commandments. Those that love me will obey me. As I was watching ESPN, those Oklahoma Sooner girls came out. And I want to show you this clip. Would you play it real quick? And just listen to their heart. And you guys see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game, because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home, and I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And, yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home, and um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So That's what it's all about. Whether they lose or win matters nothing. What matters is where they're going. That's where joy. One of the girls says, you know, last year when we won the championship, they won it about three or four times now. She said, last time, last year when we won, I was just excited about it. I was joyous. But then the next day, she wasn't a believer at this time. She said, the next day, it was like, okay, what's next? This, this has gone away. The joy has left that quick. But she says, this year when they won, she said, it wouldn't even have mattered if we lost. I know Jesus Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying in the seventh chapter here. He's saying, whether you, if you got married, you're in a bad relationship and all, give me time to work. You might even have to suffer. And I'm not saying that easily. But Jesus is saying, I suffered for you. I'm going to take care of you. You're my child. I'm going to take care of you. But remember the price I paid. And that's what he's saying here, you guys. We live in a, we're living a life that's passing away day by day. We, sometimes we get too caught up in what's happening to me, 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 me. My car's not starting. My car's not running. This, that. God knows. And he They would always sing a song. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. I've seen that in my life growing up. He's always on time. He is our husband. He is our provider. But he just don't want us to get distracted down here. We have a better home. And we're here for a purpose, to live holy, godly lives for the unbeliever might see it and ask us the reason for the hope that we have. Whether we win or lose, the worship team can come up, whether we win or lose, we've already won. 
That's what Paul is saying. Don't let this world bog you down, whether it's your health, sickness, or sorrow, whether your death of a loved one. We've read the, the warning signs. In this world, we're going to have tribulation, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We've read all that. But yet we put our hands to the plow to live for Jesus. And that's what he's saying. So since you say you're going to live for me, live for me, because it's better if you say you're going to live for me and then don't live for me, the unbeliever will see, and those that might would have given their lives to me are not going to give their lives to me because of your walk, Victor. That's what I'm saying. It, it means something to live for him. That's the charge we have in the seventh chapter here. That's the charge we have. And it's a sobering charge. But we have the Holy Spirit in us. And we can do all things through God who strengthens us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love me so much, Lord. I'm thank thankful for all the trials I've been through. Because it's drawn me closer to you. I, I think about Fat Girl once again. She would always, like a cat, I tell everybody, she would land on her feet no matter what. I said, Lord, how are you going to ever save this girl unless you do something, Lord? Because she all, she's always landing on her feet. She, she'd lose a job and get a better job. And then one day, one day, he touched her with the sweetest gift he could ever touch her. And in that sweet gift as he touches her, it brings her so much sorrow and hurt and pain. But she gave her life to Jesus. And now even in the suffering and in the pain and her body is breaking down and all those things, she smiles and says, Daddy, you're right. This tent is breaking down. But I know where I'm going when he calls me. Ever since Erica's had, had that incident, I don't think I've ever seen her not with a smile on her face. If she gets down from a doctor's report, she's only down for a little while. And then she's back on that great high of knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. I'm with you. And I will be with you to the end of the age. Keep following me. I know the plans I have for you to give you a hope and a future. And we might not ever see the, 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 the future down here. I'm not going to tell you that. But we have a future in heaven that will last forever. So hold on to God. Don't let the world drag you down. Don't let people drag you down. Jesus Christ is our hope, our eternal hope, and we should boast in him. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.